You are listening to UNS Talks, a podcast by the architecture and design firm, UN Studio. In this, our first podcast, we welcome Paul Skinner to our Amsterdam office. Paul is creative director at TellArt, an interactive storytelling studio that creates installations, exhibitions and products that allow users to explore future scenarios. In his lecture and following panel discussion, Paul discusses the Museum of the Future in Dubai with our architects and designers. The first thing to talk about is, um, is this notion of the strange present. Um, and for us, what we've realized is that um, it is a very unusual time right now. Uh, we're, we're seeing an, an, ext- uh, an extraordinary pace of change in society, something that we've never experienced before. There is um, change happening uh, left, right and center, political change, technol- technological change, uh, economical change. Um, we are really, really feeling uh, that it's much less predictable than it ever has been. We're, it's, it's, a, it's a huge amount of uncertainty which is happening all around us. Uh, so this is, this is this concept that was introduced in the late 1980s um, in this US Army War College, VUCA. And it was a term which was used to help uh, officers train for um, strategy on the battlefield. Uh, to try and help them describe this uh, state of flux on the battlefield, which is constantly changing, always uncertain. Um, It's been kind of uh, introduced to the business world now. And what it stands for is volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And these four words kind of sum up this strange present that we find ourselves in, in which everything is changing so fast. uh, The facts on the ground are undefinable. Everything's super intertwined in terms of ecosystems. Um, it's, it's networks in life all around us today. And so um, in the context of different industries, this means different things. But at the end of the day, it's a, it's, a, it's a moment of extraordinary pace of change, which has impact in the future, which is really difficult to define. And we find ourselves feeling kind of ungrounded, I guess. This is a quote that um, we drew from William Gibson's Pattern Recognition. It says, Fully imagined cultural futures were the luxury of another day, one in which now was of some greater duration. For us, of course, things can change so abruptly and violently, so profoundly, that futures like our grandparents have insufficient now to stand on. We have no future because our present is too volatile. And so it talks about this now being so moving so quickly and so undefinable that there are only kind of weak signals. We we don't really know uh, what the present actually is anymore. And the truth of it is that when you have a present like this, it, it robs us of our ability to steer what the future is. And so this notion of futures and futurism and, um, and trying to use the future as a tool with which to imagine where we want to be is something that's really important because today we don't really know where we're going and it's very difficult to um, feel like you're in control when technology is pushing you around. And I'm gonna share this project which we did uh, out in Dubai, um, which was done for the, uh, du- the, the government agency in Dubai, the prime minister's office actually. Um, and we hadn't really worked for a government a- uh, agency like that in the past. And actually this was my first project with uh, Tela. And strangely enough, I was on a boat in Amsterdam and I met this chap who's now my boss and, uh, and he's like, he invited, he was like, we've been asked to create an installation, like a big thousand square meter installation that, sh- that allows people to experience the future of their country. 
And I was like, wow, like, why wouldn't anyone do that? So I quit my job and did that. And it was the best thing that I ever did. I have to be honest, it's an incredibly interesting journey. So this is the journey. Um, so Dubai is, uh, Dubai is a really interesting context for this kind of exploration. Uh, and of course, uh, under normal, normal circumstances, like this is something I need to explain. But for architects, it's kind of obvious. Um, in 40 years, it's gone from a sort of desert wasteland in which there were people still like diving for pearls and uh, very low kind of infrastructure, not much in the way of economy, to a booming megalopolis in which it's an extremely uh, techno-utopian kind of uh, technocentric society, always looking for the next thing, always buying the next car. And of course, there's a very uh, peculiar um, set of economic constraints which has allowed this to happen. And so in this world of extraordinary growth, what you see is that, um, and with their economic uh, abilities as a sort of uh, oil producing or soon to be not oil producing uh, country, they're able to kind of pick the different parts of the world that they really like according to the values that they have and curate things and you know, kind of leapfrog uh, different parts of society or not, as the case may be. And so this, this uh, pace of change is especially important um, to, uh, to engage with. And actually, although like, um, when you think of the Middle East, um, you might not think of it being extremely progressive, this country is extremely progressive. Uh, and this guy here is, um, you know, they are an outlier in the region for sure. And they're all about finding ways to uh, progress forward and become more integrated. And there are some conservative fact factions in, in the place for sure. But there's a real expectation that, um, that there's uh, meaningful progress all the time and making lives better. And this is summed up in what they call the, the ruler's bargain, in which there's this unspoken relationship between yourself as a member of the public and this chap, who's the uh, prime minister of Dubai, Sheikh Mohammed, um, in which he will look after you. He will take care of you as a, as a, as a populace, and you, you only have to be subservient to him for as long as he's looking after you. Um, and they take this very, very seriously. It's a, it's a really interesting place in which they experiment wholeheartedly and they're not scared to fail. And I have to say, in this journey, I've been never ceased to be amazed at the risks they're willing to take. And perhaps, you know, only they are able to take as well. And as part of that innovation drive, um, we've been sort of involved in order to create this, this object that you see in front of you, um, which is in the context of uh, what, what basically is like the, um, the Middle East World Economic Forum. It's called the World Government Summit. And when we started in 2014, it was a relatively new event. I think they were in their second year and they had something like two or 3,000 um, people going there. And they rebranded to the World, Economic, uh, sorry, the World uh, Government Summit. And now there's like 6,000, 7,000 people there. And it's like, you know, you have uh, Christine Lagarde and like all of like big, important uh, business people as well uh, as all of the government leaders. They're really growing this. So it's an interesting um, context in which to uh, explore what the future could be. Um, and this is actually uh, beyond just exploring what the future could be. From the government's perspective, this is about uh, conducting real futures foresight exercises and providing proposals uh, to help people reimagine what the future could be and reimagine how they engage with this concept of the future. It's creating a vision for them. But um, what it manifests as are 
high fidelity prototypes of plausible future scenarios. So this is the shell futures world taken to another level. Um, it's a tool for planning for the government, uh, which is really interesting. Um, and so we have to take this very seriously. You can't just go in front of an audience of world leaders and say, here, this is my pipe dream of the future. Like, it has to start with some real research. Um, and so we do, we've kind of invented our own uh, methodology alongside by, by drawing on other, other people that we've worked with um, to study, to study the, the culture and study the land. And we did lots of uh, nice little uh, visits to uh, ministries around the country and figure out how they did their business, but also involve people from different places around the world, um, some futurists, uh, some filmmakers. Uh, one of these guys here is, is an underground artist from Detroit called Onyx, who turned up in a pair of 3D printed sandals that he'd made himself and wore like a 3D printed skull musical instrument. That's the guy there. And he's never had a bank account for the past 10 years. He's only used his Bitcoin. We're trying to gather like different perspectives from the world in order to validate uh, new ways of looking at what the future might be like, different worldviews. And what we didn't really know was actually there's a whole load of methodologies out there already which uh, can help you navigate this kind of stuff. At this point, Paul talks about various models and principles that guide and structure Telarts research. You can find out more about this portion of Paul's lecture by following the link in our podcast description. So I'm going to go through some of the, some of the explorations that we've done, um, starting with healthcare, education and infrastructure, and try and explain how they manifested. So we started, I should say that like, we've done four of these projects now. Um, they, are, they have been annual. They, the first one started something like five months ahead of when it was supposed to launch, and that nearly killed me. Um, and then the last year we had something like nine months. And so we've built out the project to create much more of a tale, which is all of the strate strategic thinking in which we created all of these scenarios. Um, because we ended up having to present uh, to the government like how we ended up at these things and what the, what the events from today into the future, uh, like how we join the dots and, and prove plausibility. But for healthcare, for example, we provided a scenario in which healthcare transforms from a reactive system into one which is active and preventative. It's distributed everywhere and it's holistic. It takes into account your whole life rather than uh, just a single thing, just a single instance, which is your symptom. And we presented this bathroom of the future in which uh, as part of your daily routine, you would uh, step, up to the, um, step up to your bathroom sink and then you would have a, an interaction with your algorithmic uh, general practitioner who would help you live your life um, more, um, uh, more healthily. So uh, he would say, for example, uh, oh, good morning. Uh, actually, uh, it's not such a good morning. Three of your uh, colleagues at work have, have actually come down with a cold, so you might want to consider working from home. And because there's lots of illness going around, we've uh, augmented your breakfast with some extra vitamin C. Um, but since you're working from home, there's a low pollution factor out today, so perhaps you want to go for a run and increase your exercise this week. You know, so the preventative healthcare becomes something, when you, when you have like your bed, which knows exactly how much you've slept, and your wristwatch, which knows how much you've exercised, 
And you have, we had artifacts on display like uh, a smart fork, which is a connected fork, which would monitor the chemicals that you're ingesting with every mouthful, like the kind of quantified self stuff that, that is kind of um, becoming embedded in products uh, more and more. Then you ended up with a much more intelligent healthcare system that was actually able to guide you towards wellness rather than respond to your, um, to your illness, which is a really powerful idea. Um, and for this one, uh, this is a, we, we, uh, di well, we didn't diagnose, but we found that obesity is a number one health issue in the UAE. And so like, how could we introduce a healthcare system which, as a, which was a diagnostic tool, but also combated obesity? Um, because everyone in the UAE, of course, it's an inhospitable environment. You always spend your whole day in, uh, in a shopping mall or indoors. So um, rather than outside exercising, how could we create uh, an immersive uh, healthcare game? And so we created this space which was fully projection mapped, which was all about uh, diagnosing your body for movement and flexibility, and at the same time giving you a workout as part of a, like your in-mall shopping experience. And what's incredible about a place like the UAE is that um, it's, it's not easy to take for granted that these things, like you might imagine a game space like this is something that, oh, this is a business that springs up in a shopping mall. Kids would put money in like an old arcade. Actually, lots and lots of businesses that you see as private enterprise in the UAE is actually owned by the government. All of the taxis are owned by the government. Loads of the hotels are owned by the government. Um, all of the petrol stations are owned by the government. Um, and so when you have this kind of uh, world in which it's okay, like Emirates Airlines and so on, it's okay for the government to be making profit, it's really interesting to try and explore what different healthcare models might exist and how they integrate with the urban environment uh, given the kind of lifestyle that people lead over there and are likely to lead more and more in the future. Um, so this was uh, another healthcare uh, experiment that was in a later year which was a, kind of like a cross between uh, a pharmacy and a juice bar. So we're, we're creating an immersive uh, experience in which people could, could ingest uh, different um, food and drink as, a, as part of a hospitality experience. So in Dubai, of course, everything happens in hotels. So why is healthcare something that still happens in hospitals? Couldn't healthcare, if it's something which is preventative and something which is distributed all the time, um, know uh, how to give you um, vitamins and how to uh, medicate you even uh, in a more hospitable environment in which you're socializing with your friends and so on. Um, and it's amazing culturally how these kinds of, um, these kind of ideas resonated. Moving on to education, patterns of education that point to education being something that happens more out there in the world as an experience, uh, something that's more collaborative and exploratory, um, brought us to this uh, vision of what a, like a sandbox, how a sandbox might be a, um, this is a very much more like a, a product of the future, which exists today already, but isn't in the school environment. Um, how, we, how kids could be learning about um, uh, the geology of the land, water tables and so on, uh, by collaboratively exploring um, uh, using a, a hands-on interactive interface like this. And actually, we've, got a, um, we've now uh, 
uh, developed this, because this was built on an open source project, but we've developed it further and uh, we've incorporated machine learning now so that when you're uh, making mountains like this, it maps on uh, generated um, satellite images. So you're kind of like simulating what it would be like if you terraformed the Earth. And this is, uh, this is gonna be in the, um, in the V&A Museum in their upcoming Futures exhibition, which is happening in London later this year, which is really exciting. Um, but then further than that, we were trying to imagine what it would be like to, in a world in which you are able to uh, synthesize new life. So what if you could synthetically engineer new plants and how would that be taught in a classroom, you know, for school kids of the future in which engineering new biology is going to be an everyday sort of thing? And how do these school kids um, work with industry? And so we created this game in which you sit around the table and, and engineer new uh, plants that are competing on this inhospitable environment to see uh, which plants are successful. And successful plants would then be sent to the lab and be... Um, be uh, made in real life rather than in the gaming experience, uh, experience. and that's along the top. They've got like a um, a live collect, uh, connection to the lab, um, and the idea is that like school children are playing an active role in industry while at the same time learning with a simplified building blocks of uh, of synthesizing new life forms for uh, creating new food in a place like Dubai in which nothing grows. Um, and this was a, uh, an immersive learning environment in which uh, we've already traveled to Mars and started to colonize it. So what would education look like if there was already a group of people living on Mars? And how could we teach people about what it's like to live in, on another planet? Uh, well, we could have a telepresent experience in which you're guided by people who are actually on the planet now farming and explore how their life is different to what it's like Actually, it doesn't look that dissimilar from Dubai, to be honest, if you go out into the desert, but, but that's what they found. So talking beyond education to infrastructure, what if the city became something that was information rich and automated uh, in a way that it isn't today? Um, infrastructure today is actually quite slow moving and slow to change, but what if it became flexible? And so we had to create this immersive uh, environment in which the, the fabric of the world simulated the city. Um, so intriguingly, like this, this uh, big display system at the front here was the only way that we could figure out how to augment a real cityscape uh, virtually without having people wear... I mean, this was, uh, let's see... Um, 2015, so none of the augmented reality apps that exist today were out. Uh, and people weren't willing to wear headsets. But how can we storytell what a city might be like where it's uh, layered with information? So when you came in through the front door, which is um, back here, you got to see a live augmented view of the street that's in front of you. And you could see people walking behind it. Um, and it would explain what was going on in the city, what investment opportunities lied in different buildings, uh, some uh, sort of dynamic wayfinding and so on, and your smart bus was about to turn up um, around there, so new forms of mobility. Um, <clears throat> and then also like a sensor-driven environmental control um, so that you could actually, this is a collaboration with Carlo Ratti in MIT, uh, which is a, um, yeah, like a, a street-based air conditioning so that it was, it was misting you based on where you were in the street. It, it created a more uh, habitable spaces um, interestingly, uh, I don't know, like since this, 
exhibition, they've developed this whole crazy area of Dubai. Um, I forget what it's called off the top of my head, but it's kind of like a, it's a bit like Disneyland where you go and there's like little Italy and stuff. It's like a shopping mall environment, but it's all outdoors. And they seem to be air conditioning the whole street, um, which is absolute crazy madness for me, but I don't, I haven't, so I need to look that up as to how they're doing that, but it feels cool there. So I'm wondering if they, um, if they found a way to do that. Um, and this of course is like, it's part theater. And so we're trying to find ways to get people excited about what it looks like when the streets are no longer just something that you work on, but actually all of the dull, dirty and dangerous jobs are done by robots and the streets are reprogrammable. So instead of street workers, you have street programmers. And what does that mean for our jobs? Um, because actually there's, a, there's an interesting pattern uh, about, um, about technology in our lives. And it's true that although like, there's a lot of um, worry about uh, the singularity when uh, computers become completely more intelligent and there's a more intelligent general intelligence than we are, than we have, there's a, there's a bigger story of, of decreasing human agency. And what happens where, um, what happens where uh, yeah, like technology first invades our bodies and then it becomes something we socialize with and then it becomes something which is, which is more controlling us. And this hypothesis of a decreasing human agency was something that led us on to um, creating this, this subsequent exhibition about the human body uh, because this is something which will become with artificial intelligence and advanced robotics, more mediated, more mechanized, and even networked. So what does that mean for our lives? How's that gonna impact our lives? And we created this, um, this retail space. The museum became like a, a kind of, um, like a future Apple shop mixed with a kind of a cosmetic surgery environment in which you could become, you would be able to test out different uh, products uh, by walking into this space which we call the augmentation spa. There are all of these products, which we uh, fictional project products, which we invented, which you would be able to um, see on display and uh, and test out. And we were in testing them out. We were um, we were creating uh, fake advertisements. We were creating virtual reality experiments. This is a game in which your knees were going to be replaced by um, new knees to augment your ability to jump physically. Uh, this is mood view, so you'd be able to look around and uh, like read people's expressions that are from different cultures. The um, machine learned kind of algorithms would be able to tell you what other people are feeling uh, in a way that you weren't able to. Or what if your, uh, your uh, visual streams would be, would be something that you're actually able to share? So going beyond Facebook and Instagram and sharing, sharing me, what if all of your uh, pupils were something that actually could be shared dynamically with your social networks? What would that world be like? And would you be willing to, to purchase it? And we were handing out brochures. And at the very tail end of the experience, you would actually order stuff using an iPad. Um, and it's amazing that people were ordering things, um, which brings me on to another story about the, the way that we are trying to create a kind, of, a kind of suspension of disbelief. These are immersive spaces in which we're storytelling obvious, what, what we thought were obviously fictional uh, scenarios, things that don't exist today and that aren't going to exist for the near future. And yet some people, I mean, they just believe it. They just believe that these things are products that they can buy. Um, and we had our first uh, experience of this in 
uh, the first exhibition in which we did uh, a um, like a version of border control, like an immigration experience when you're getting your passport checked. And we, we were challenged because um, they thought that that was a very inhospitable experience and it didn't represent them culturally. And so they wanted to know in the future how technology might be able to change this and what the impact of, of technology might be. And so we created this very, very hospitable experience in which you were given a, um, a cold hand towel. It's a traditional welcome there where it's very hot. And so you cool yourself down and you go through these sensors and then your body is scanned for, um, for weapons and so on. All of it's just LEDs and fiction and connects with displays. And then you give back your hand towel and it gets dropped into this scanner and it gets scanned for uh, communicable diseases which everyone was very shocked about. They're like, what, you're scanning my, this, these, those are my skin, you know, that's my skin that you're sc scanning. But then one woman came up to us, and you know, some, some people are um, like the Ministry for Transport, they were really excited by this idea that actually it was gonna be a welcoming experience and it's something they wanted to aspire to. And yet this other lady came through who was pregnant and she was really worried because she thought that this was a real um, product test. And she, was, she asked us if the scanners that she had just walked through had harmed her unborn baby. And of course, you know, like it's a very, pregnancy is very anxiety inducing for anyone who's gone through it. And, and uh, that's very natural, but it astounded us. We had no expectation that people would actually believe that these are real products. But it goes to show that most people don't feel like they have agency in this world and that they're just given these things and that they happen to us. And actually this whole project was about putting people into these situations to have them feel what it might be like in this future and, and to come to some kind of like perspective on whether they wanted this future. Domestic space, of course, is already being invaded by um, sort of pseudo-sentience, um, Alexa and so on, but it's being augmented by things which eventually will become empathic. They'll be able to um, feel what we feel. And so if we have a space in which can be completely, um, it can manipulate your understanding of your home world um, in this way, what if it could actually engage with you on a much more emotional level? And if you look here, this is a, um, a projection map space. Actually, the space is a lot smaller than this, but it, it feels bigger when you walk into it. And then it completely transforms your living room into a gaming environment. So when you have this little being that welcomes you home every day, what would it be like to come home to an artificial intelligence that actually wanted to cheer you up by gaming with you and so we explore what, what if this, this childlike, um, what if this childlike uh, being uh, welcomed you home versus, ooh, I seem to have skipped one. Um, there, was a, there was a middle one, which I seem to be missing the slide here, but it was more like a, a caring spouse that would help you relax and set you down into a massage chair and your room would turn into a, uh, into a kind of tropical environment. And this one is like, what happens when uh, we actually put our babies and most uh, vulnerable people into the care of an artificial intelligence um, and allow this, uh, this artificial intelligence to rock your baby to sleep. Do we feel comfortable with letting go to that degree? And what was interesting in this environment is that actually they were really comfortable with letting go, um, really comfortable with giving their care. I mean, I'm, I have a little detector that 
that I have a three-month-old baby. I have a little detector which tells me whether my baby's still breathing. And it's amazing how I feel extraordinary comfort just watching this little thing go like, yep, still breathing, still breathing. You know, so anytime I wake up in the night, I just look at it and it's like, yep, he's cool. Um, but like, would you allow it to take complete ownership? They're saying yes, because they already have nannies in every single home. Like, um, nannies from other cultures who they don't really relate to and don't speak the same language as come in and they're not really, you know, they're not really one of them. They're not part of the family. So this is a, this is a future which they really felt positive towards, which was, which was strange to me. And beyond that, governance. Like, we're, of course, talking about government futures. Um, and all of these things are, in a way, uh, trying to steer the government towards the kind of interventions they can make to make people's lives better. But what about government itself? What if governance becomes something which is um, everywhere all the time, um, but it also has to be ethical? It's because it's making decisions about our daily lives in an algorithmic way. And so we invented this uh, super sci-fi uh, government data processing facility in which all of the big decisions of the country are being made in real time. And this, um, this device in the center, this kind of like orb of like intelligence, symbolized all of the thousands and billions of data points which are being analyzed uh, uh, from the, you know, the traffic streams around the world to the uh, economic um, transactions which are happening on a day-to-day -day basis. And we called it the UAE Hypermind. And we wanted to know what people felt like when they lost complete control, these being the people which were in control of the country. Uh, and the way that we did that was we, we, gave, we had this hypermind, this fictional kind of intelligence, uh, give all of these uh, government workers a job interview. And of course, the job, your job, you, the career that you choose and the way that you, you choose to spend your hours every day is something that we feel defines us, our identity, what, we, what purpose we have in this land and this life. And in this situation, the, the, the system was actually uh, telling you it, it was kind of asking you uh, oblique questions about how you would perform in certain situations. Would you behave like this in this situation? Or would you behave like this in this situation? And it felt like they were kind of weird uh, interview questions to be asked, really unusual for them. Uh, and then they just get given a job. They don't get any agency at all anymore. And actually, uh, interestingly, this made people feel really uncomfortable, like more than, like they really didn't want to be told what to do. Um, because it, it started to talk about how ethically uh, decisions were being made by this, this, uh, this system and what role we were playing in this decision-making process. And they found this really, really compelling. And so we actually took this, uh, this particular idea out further and developed this into um, what we called the moral machine. And this was explicitly about how humans can start to shape the ethical dilemmas which uh, artificial intelligences are gonna face when they're making all of our decisions for us. And we presented this at the World Economic Forum to like the bigger version of the government summit in which there were many more world leaders kind of thinking about how uh, these decisions are being taken for them basically. And it was a really interesting um, uh, situation in which this system is, is basically allowed to act in the best interest of society. Um, uh, to for us like how do we feel about that and actually they were really excited because I guess like it provides them like these are these are f for now they're translation systems they are 
it's it's like a pseudo control. It feels like we're in control, but these are this is just translating millions and millions of data points into means of giving us the sensation that we're in control, whereas actually we're probably not. But they felt like, yeah, like we want to be able to guide these systems on making decisions for us, and actually that's a very positive future. We want that, which is really, really uh, feels really, really strange to me. This is a really interesting one that we uh, we decided to um, try and steer towards. What, what would happen in a future in which we failed to uh, adequately address uh, climate change? Like, how do we talk to a country and the leaders of country who are among, whose country is amongst the worst polluting in the world uh, to think differently about their agency towards what kind of future they want to create post-climate change? And so we started with this incredibly bleak, dim uh, animation which showed like the, and it had this voiceover about the amount of struggle that we're gonna have um, in, in reaching this point. And then it's, because of course, like there is a, there is a point in which uh, if we don't address climate change, um, we might be extinct. And that's a really crazy and sobering fact. So what, how do we present this uh, optimistically? Um, and so we invented this kind of post-climate change world in which the, the, the UAE as a country steered its way towards innovations which would be exported to the rest of the world and basically narrowly avert like worldwide catastrophe uh, and start tell the st telling the story of what those innovations might be. And they're wildly fictional, you know, this is a, um, so we, we basically went back to Laszlo's hierarchy of needs, you know, how are we going to get uh, water, how are we going to get food, how are we going to get shelter, like what, a, what we're going to live in a very, very different environment in which it's going to be a real struggle to survive. And so we addressed, for example, water with enormous plants which are desalinating the sea after having created genetically, uh, like merging, um, uh, what was it again, uh, uh, the DNA of jellyfish with mangrove roots, which are nature's, jellyfish of course is like a big uh, like water filter and um, mangrove roots are nature's natural desalinator. And so this fictional kind of enormous plant in which they're able to provide water for masses of people um, off the coast of Dubai and then export. Um, what does farming look like? And what, what does the creation of food look like uh, in a post-climate change world? Well, we, we talked long and hard with lots of climate change experts about the, the ways in which resilience might manifest like the distributed nature of food, like just, just creating just enough food for the population that's in one part of the urban environment at a time, uh, how it might be to um, dynamically uh, create new farms uh, like we do now with data servers, uh, data, data farms. And of course, they, they got really, really excited about this. And we had even like a chef behind the scenes uh, creating these fictional pieces of food that you could taste that were made of insects and... Uh, artificially created, um, uh, yeah, nu nutrients, and uh, and people were, like it was really really interesting because we made these little things, uh, super crunchy olive tapenade cubes um, from seeds and whatnot, and we told people that they were insects, and <laughs> and they ate them, you know, like and they were like, you know, like that kind of that f the full immersion was really really important. Um, and this thing was this idea of uh, how, do we, how do we create rapidly deployable uh, urban in infrastructure um, 
And so it's kind of way out there, but we created this gaming environment in which you're able to deploy this kind of, um, these, uh, yeah, these self-extracting city kits which would replicate cultural uh, environments that we've got around the world today um, robotically uh, in order to uh, take advantage of like uh, pieces of inhabitable, cl inhabitable climate where they existed. And then beyond that, having people actually make a commitment towards uh, a particular future. So we, we try to always be collecting data about how people feel in these different situations. And this one, as an example, was like a kind of, uh, which was a commitment to, um, to the government about like what kind of uh, investment they should make and what they should uh, research. And this is just like a, a really nice way to activate people's minds into how they, how they have agency in, this, in, this, um, in their jobs. but we are uh, creating a, a more real and tangible version of a, of a report. You know, like this whole thing was actually created when the client was like, no one reads these massive research reports that we pay millions towards. How can we get people enthused and engaged by what's possible in the future and what the, fu what the impact of these technologies are going to be in a way that they can feel? Um, if you only need to look at advertising to know that like how something makes you feel can change your behavior overnight. And so this is all about positioning people into an immersive future and having them feel what it's like to live even for five minutes in this future um, and react to it viscerally because it can uh, change the way they, they imagine what they want to see in the future. We're, we're trying to find this interesting uh, tension point in which people can be social with each other and discuss whether they find something attractive or repulsive. Um, ultimately, uh, by discussing stuff like that and talking about our feelings, it's really, really important because this is how we make decisions. But the idea is that it's about storytelling. So every decision that we take about the color and the shape of the space is to further enhance the different layers of storytelling that we're trying to uh, t to tell to different audiences within this government environment. This is, this is really a storytelling exercise where we're creating these, these extraordinarily complex spaces uh, where we have this mixed mediums of screens and projections. And so for us, this is about prototyping and making stuff that you can actually uh, interact with in order to transform what people would imagine. Because the idea is that like, um, that what we imagine to be the future is probably, if, if we're imagining this collectively, this is kind of what happens. And this is, um, this is uh, summed up nicely in this quote from Sheila Jasanoff. Uh, and she says that socio-technical imaginaries are collectively held, institutionally stabilized, and publicly performed visions of desirable futures. Um, so she's saying that like, uh, yeah, effectively, like if we, if we all imagine what future we want to have, this is the future which will be steered towards because these are the things which will be created for certain markets and so on. It's incredibly powerful if we can change people's mindsets. And so it's a huge marketing exercise and it makes us call into question um, how we're telling these kind of stories and how we're creating these aspirational futures or not in institutions like museums. But just to reflect on the futures as a practice, um, for us, like, futures has become something that we use as a, as a mode of critique. It's a way to um, 
reframe critique as something which is critical as critique as being intentional and aspirational. So these are prototypes that we feel that we want to pr provoke people with, and some of them are like teetering on the edge of uh, dystopian, and some of them are clearly utopian. But at the end of the day, we're saying, this could change our lives for the better. Is this a, is this a future we want to um, aim towards or not? Um, and beyond that, futures are a force for change. Um, like this, is, this is about exploring alternative possibilities and actually taking concrete action towards that. And it's intriguing for me now that uh, in the first year we had provided um, amongst a thousand other things, uh, for example, reframing ministries, government ministries, and rebranding ministries in order to shift public perspective. And we invented for them the Ministry of Happiness and the Ministry of Second Life Education and so on, um, the Ministry of Artificial Intelligence. And today they have I think the first, I won't, don't quote me on this, but I think the first female minister was the Minister for Happiness. She was our client in the first uh, project. Now they have a Minister for AI, and he was a part of the second year. Like, it's kind of coming true in a strange sort of, I can't take credit for that, but, you know, it's incredible how um, initiatives have been created and mindsets have been shifted um, through the choices that they're making. Um, and then, of course, uh, using, using this, this mindset and sharing this for ourselves as something that shows us how actually we do have influence and we do have agency to shape the future, especially in a context like this, like architects, holy shit, like you guys are making the future every day. Like it's, it's all kinds of futures are being created in your office as I walked around it today. So you should certainly feel agency. Um, so that's it. So very, very exciting um, <clears throat> presentation. I must say, I'm, I'm very sold. Like, I'm, 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 I'm start, even from the images, I'm, I'm believer. I was then at the same time uh, thinking parallel how, how we can maintain, like, somehow uh, unsold. Or is you, as where you're creating those scenarios, thinking about that, that you have to maintain also your critical point of view. Do you, do, have you ever thought about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it it appears when you're looking at the manifestation of this stuff that it is like purely techno utopian and actually like some we've got you know in magazines and newspapers and stuff like people have said like oh just assume that it's all techno utopian um but it's been an interesting journey of trying to create provocation where we can you know like um in that kind of culture um i have to be honest like when i first went to the country i'd never been to dubai before and i was going with a presentation deck of all of the technologies that I thought would be uh, massively disruptive in the next sort of like 10, 15 years. And I was going to tell them about Tor as one of the examples and the dark web and the Silk Road marketplace and how that's about trading drugs and guns and children. And I was like, on the plane, I was like, is this okay? Like, can I talk about this stuff? I don't even know, you know? And so actually it's been an, it's been a really interesting journey of trying to walk this line between optimist, like optimistic techno-utopianism and sort of critical dialogue in, in shifting perspectives where we can. And some of that stuff is manifested really weirdly. Like we found that, um, not with our clients, but like when you're presenting to a wider, maybe some, sometimes more conservative audience, 
that manifested in the way that we represented our ideas as well. Like we wanted to create an animation of somebody swallowing a pill, like a kind of, you know, like a two-dimensional cross-section animation. We couldn't do that because like culturally it's not okay to show the inside of someone's body, like just like historically. Um, and yet other places we found uh, enormous, like we're way more progressive when it comes to like the role of women in society and divorcees and other stuff like that. So yes, it's, it's supposed to be both. But I think when you take it out of context, <laughs> out of the Dubai Middle East context in which it's not just Dubai, it's also there's uh, like Qatar and Saudi Arabia who are coming to visit um, and bring it to today, to, sorry, to the Western world. Yes, it feels like utopian, but we tried to be critical. And there was a huge amount of critical discussion I was just going to pick up on that. I think it's extremely interesting that the the content that was defined through this process came from a intersection of you guys, a Western group, it seems like mostly, with the UAE as a kind of non-democracy. Mm. And that it seems like a real testing ground for different algorithmic gov governance, as you say, and almost like a opening up of um, a survey or like their own sort of ref extremely interactive referendum where they're inviting a series of scenarios and trying to get feedback from citizens about what the response was. Mm. Is that, was that the kind of intention or... Because I understand it was also extremely short term, right? Just yeah, yeah, they're just open for like days four or, days, yeah. So an insane investment from their part into a very short term... So was that the goal, to kind of get feedback from individuals, or was it more like emotional um, on the side of the government, or...? I think it was, so the goal was really to um, have, to, so yes, it was, <coughs> it's a lot of investment, but like those three, four days are the moment where everyone who has influence in that region comes together um, and has a chance to discuss important stuff, you know, like, so while it was short term, it was probably, if you're going to create a sting at the right moment of, and create impact, then that was a great thing to try and do. Um, so that's what they were attempting. But they were trying to uh, provoke debate around these topics which weren't being discussed on a public platform and that they wanted to be discussed more explicitly in government um, and at different levels of government as well because there are lots of people who are, it's a quite a def deferential society. And so like lots of people who are at lower levels in government were just kind of like following orders, but actually they wanted to provoke the kind of like creative initiative development at all levels of government beyond that. Um, and they created sort of uh, parallel initiatives to, to try and provoke that as well. With regard to whether it was a data collection exercise, you know, I guess what you're hinting towards is like a kind of, yeah, like a exercise in sort of democracy to some degree. Um, I would say that actually it's really interesting that that kind of feedback process happens a lot there, um, but it's very much more hierarchical and familial, which is what you would expect. You know, you say it's not a democracy, but actually nothing goes through government there without being tested with all of the families, which are sort of have all of these lineages. And it's a kind of, it harks back to the old sort of tribal days. Um, and so it isn't, it isn't a Western-formed democracy, but actually there's a huge amount of socializing of new policies and initiatives um, that spin off the back of a provocative sort of statement piece like this. Um, whether that extends so far as like people who, yeah, I mean, it, it's like a, I don't really feel like I can speak to like how, you know, like 
the UAE has, of course, like a huge uh, like immigrant workforce. And I don't think it's, that's for everybody there, but that's another ethical question which we could only begin to address. Um, we have this discussion in our office about museums being public or private and um, if a public museum still exists. And I think then putting on a museum saying it's open for public is quite a funny statement and again and goes along with this discussion of like what is private and what is public and creating a museum in a very artificial hospitality environment is also quite an uh, unusual thing which would not happen that way maybe in Europe or as far well, as I, mean, I know. I, so I don't far, think yeah. you could call, I was always very conflicted about this notion of calling it a museum because it's not a museum objectively. Um, but because it's only like a temporary event thing, it doesn't mean the same thing. It's not an institution which has like longevity in the same way as you might think here. Um, but it, but like in terms of the term, it created a kind of authority uh, that was useful in that context, right? It kind of it was like a browsable authority on the subject that you could kind of like peruse and take how much you wanted and then go through and then leave it. So it was more about the behavior of people that we wanted to create. And um, I guess it's kind of provocative to say museum of the future, which is some museums, of course, normally focus on things gone by rather than things of the future. And that captured people's imaginations. And it was it's really that simple. But yeah, I mean, public pride, I don't yeah, I'm intrigued by what, what discussion you, you're having. <laughs> Hi, uh, thank you, first of all. I was wondering if uh, these visitors ever questioned the general security of these digital future security scenarios. In, do you like, mean like privacy? Yeah, like cyber <coughs> crimes. Uh, yeah. Um, like you give think. out so much data even by like, for instance, you walk through or you give your, you just scan your hands, whatever, like everything. Was there like discussion about that? Yeah, um, it's, yeah, yeah, I mean, that was one thing that we thought would become much more prevalent than it was, in fact. And I think culturally, that's because there's an extraordinary trust and expectation that uh, the state kind of has access and looks after your data. It's, um, excuse me, it's not, it's not like in Europe, uh, you know, or even, you know, especially in Germany, where it's like, it's more, it's like a rights issue, you know, like it's, they don't, they're, they're not so advanced there in that thinking, you know. Um, we did have some interesting discussions around that and we had panel sessions afterwards uh, that specifically addressed that uh, to try and get people thinking more actively about that because there's all of these, all of these things are multi, you know, you're kind of reliant on lots of different technologies to get there and there's lots and lots of different kind of impact areas uh, to explore. So, so the answer is yes. Um, but people weren't worried about it. They didn't really, only the Westerners seemed to care. Are you worried about it? Oh, I'm extraordinarily worried. I mean, I think that like, um, it's already too late, you know, for us at least. Like maybe um, for our children, we can devise like a kind of legislative system in which they have a better understanding of what it means to be putting their data out into the world. But I mean, you know, I'm already owned. Game over. <laughs> yeah. One question also would be about the experience. Like if you, when you see the museum of the future, which kind of experiences you as a creator 
so is the most successful ones in terms of having the biggest impact. Did you guys have any like a, a recap on the on the museum of the future? Which one was really like kind of most influential one? What did you saw as something that really impacts the spectator or the, the visitor? And which one was less uh, successful in, in your opinion? Let's see. I think that the, like, one of the most successful ones was the one which was about human agency. We called it machinic life. Um, it was about yeah, how, our machine, how, how our lives will become increasingly machinic. Um, and that was really nice because it was, we experimented with being a little bit more didactic about how what products and services exist today, uh, not just products and services, but industries even exist today, which explicitly point towards the future we're about to show you. And so it made it a lot clearer for visitors how it's very directly related, because most of the people hadn't seen the stuff that we displayed, like a bionic leg that you could control from your brain, or they didn't know about algorithmic trading, uh, which is, of course, uh, like the micro trading, which happens all the time now. That people don't understand that that stuff is happening by computers already. Um, so that was extremely powerful as a, as a, as a mode of operation. But the, the experiences that were the most compelling and successful uh, were the ones which were most colorful, theatrical, uh, immersive, and ultimately photographable. Because like, uh, like people exist today in a- Instagrammable. Yeah, it's Instagrammable, exactly. Like, that's, like our client is always joking with us and saying, more smoke machines and more lasers. And we're like, dude, come on, this is serious. And he's like, I'm deadly serious. You know, like, <laughs> and, and he's right, you know, like it's, it's taken us a while to get there. But actually, like with this kind of stuff, like this is the, this is the nature of today. And people are searching for this kind of theatrical experience and, um, to, and, to, and to have an experience, to show that they've had an experience that was novel and, uh, and unique and then to be able to share that with the second audiences, I think that's where we saw the most success. That's probably also why VR, you would rather make a screen all around a person rather than put a VR on the, on yeah, the face, because, because a, you cannot really share it. Like no. it's your VR experience that's, you know, how, how do you share it on Instagram or? Or even with the person standing next to you. Exactly. It's private. Well, we had, what we did with that was we had a, you had your VR experience and then there was a screen just behind that showed exactly what you were looking at. So you could watch someone do it. Um, but this is like the kind of thing that museums are, this is, this is not unique to this, of course, like museums, theme parks are struggling with this all the time. VR roller coasters coming next. Probably already exists. <laughs> it does. <laughs> oh, we didn't make it. Uh, from the process point of view, how do you test those, those vision scenarios? Is it because, for example, as we progress, we do renders, we do animation, we do 3D modeling, uh, what would be your nature of, of testing those things? Which one would be the best? Uh, we do all of that stuff. I mean, when, when it comes to the scenarios, um, the first thing is to, uh, we're to test them with different, I mean, we involve lots of different people. Um, and then as the scenarios res up into uh, ideas that we can imagine experiences around, we start to prototype stuff very quickly to try and manifest what that experience will be like. And we have people sit and do it, you know, like, it's, this is our practice generally, often in order to create this kind of stuff. I mean, I should say that the, what we're trying to do here, which is difficult, is create an experience of the future using technologies which only exist today. You know, so they're all, you, you have to kind of give yourself 
you have to sort of sus willingly suspend your disbelief and you know that it's only a VR headset, you know, you know, you know that this stuff isn't real. Um, but we're always trying to, f to prototype the, the most successfully immersive version of that. Um, and in doing so, we often have to invent new storytelling devices, like that ball thing, which was like a totally new interface. Like no one had developed, a, as far as I know, like a, a reflective gaming ball which allowed you to do this kind of stuff. And we had to test lots of different versions. We had to test all of the different paint surfaces. You know, like this is kind of micro architecture when it comes to that stuff. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just a question of prototyping. We are, we are inventors and shapers of materials that we just, we just, in fact, that's like a, an, like what I was kind of talking about at Frame recently. Um, it's about how to learn, learning how to use emerging technologies. Like that's, that we, we like to think of those things as materials. That's what's important about it. It seems uh, most everything you do is quite controlled in the sense that you're trying to anticipate what the outcome is. Um, I was wondering about the, the hypermind. You're talking about uh, algorithms where there's some sort of like interaction happening. I was wondering, uh, were you planning on uh, farming data or uh, trying to gather um, uh, statistics to analyze to actually create something real? Was that just all theatrical or were you this thinking This is all about theatrical. That? Like, I think that we would love to do that more. I think that that in particular is a very scary, potentially dystopian concept. But I do think that like experimenting hands-on with it more is actually the right thing to do in order to figure out whether it's something we want or not. But that's not something we, we're doing right now. It's something that probably Google will be doing uh, <laughs> right now. <laughs> I'm just thinking, because we did discuss it uh, a while back, uh, for example, like, uh, creating some uh, interactive uh, thing by the, the front of the office where um, mood could be judged, like the mood of the world could be judged by colors. Oh, or, I see, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but and I was just kind of wondering if you were also playing with, with ideas, uh, maybe for other projects where you were planning on um, uh, finding ways of gathering data and then transforming it into some, some other expression. Yeah, yeah, and you'll be incredibly amazed by the kind of uh, inferences that you can make from data these days. I was talking to an energy company recently, um, and with the smart meters, you'll be amazed to find out that it's possible to tell which TV program you're watching just from your smart meter. Like, there is an, the data science which is happening around us right now, we're not data scientists, but for sure, like I'd love to talk about creating an installation which is uh, exploring some of those manifestations of the stories which are around us in data and how our culture manifests in the data points that exist all around us. Yeah, it's awesome. Because yeah, I know in the office here, they, they get quite excited about making diagrams. All right. You know? <laughs> and uh, it seems to me that that's a lot more dynamic. You know, it's like something which can actually be like, a type of future wallpaper or a type yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure, yeah. Type of art. Okay. Are there any more questions from the audience or do we have questions from our visitors online or viewers online? <laughs> oh, gosh. Where's our audience? <laughs> from online? This is the first time this has happened. No one from the audience? Okay, then online. <laughs> Who is it? Well, there's a lot of, lot of debate going on around uh, Dubai generally. Oh, gosh. Um, but, and this is also, there's a, a question uh, which is coming in from... Pletorica, 
which is um, in the Museum of the Future, generally not the one that is, is there already, but in the Museum of the Future. And if the future is authoritarian, how can we uh, address or how can we create art that, uh, that transgresses the status quo or that's critical of the government? Uh, well, I mean, that's a much bigger question. I think it's really important to contextualize this project as being a project of the government. Uh, so our job was to find ways to um, meaningfully provoke the debate inside the government towards areas that they weren't previously willing or able or just wasn't happening, like the, the, the subject areas. And so like, it was an interesting experiment for the government to create transgression within itself. Right? Like, I don't know that I can speak to how society can create transgression in that context. I wouldn't want to incite that kind of stuff publicly. <laughs> um, but I think it's an intriguing question. You know, like it's, it's um, the, I, th I think like beyond this project more broadly, it's important to realize that through our everyday actions and our decisions as consumers of politics and products and services and culture in general, we are making decisions about our future collectively. And as um, Ren said earlier, like it's, um, it's about deciding what you want and what you believe in. And that's, uh, yeah, like that's, it's maybe a little bit harder to draw that line when you're in a country and you have the government to deal with. I wish that we didn't vote Brexit, you know, like, and I wish the government didn't act on it, but like, you know, I can in my way, like try and uh, try and do what I can. And that's all from this edition of UNS Talks. To hear more from Paul, or to ask him a question about his talk, you can find him on Twitter, at Skinner, that's S-K-I-N-N-R. Be sure to keep an eye out for the date of our next UNS Talk that will be streamed live on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. A special thanks to Boifar and Deboer for recording this lecture. Until next time.